Well, this morning, Pastor Albert and I together want us to think about us. And by that, I mean what it, what it just means in the light of the Bible uh, to be a human being. I had not realized the controversial topics that this plunges me into. And one of them goes a long way back into a conflict that's existed for a long time between the so-called religious community, I guess that's where I am, and the so-called scientific community, in which we are told that there are completely different views of human beings and that the two are so contradictory that they can never be brought together. Well, the first thing I want to say is I want to quote Fats Waller, where he wrote, it ain't necessarily so. Now, here, being in an area where we have so many uh, scientists, I, I can't ignore this, because the debate goes back a long time. It goes at least as far as back as June 1860, when just seven months after Charles Darwin published his On the Origin of Species, there was this big debate put together between a spiritual leader and one of the professors. It was uh, Bishop Samuel Wilberforce of Oxford University debating with Professor Thomas Huxley of London. Now, I'll tell you, this thing has been cited in so many books. There's no transcript of the debate whatsoever. It's the stuff of which legends is made. But the one part that everybody agrees about is this, that uh, Bishop Wilberforce, who must have been very glib of tongue, a gifted speaker like Pastor Albert, said something like this in the midst of the debate. Uh, Professor Huxley, was it through your grandmother or grandfather that you consider yourself to be descended from a monkey. That's the one point. Interestingly, it may surprise you now in the light of what's happened since. Interestingly, the scientific community back in the 19th century largely sided with the bishop's viewpoint. And biologist, well-known biologist Richard Owen, in fact, said this. We believe that there is more to a human life than simply the material a viewpoint that many have continued to hold. But, but the debate about this has raged for this uh, 150 or, or so years. And I'll tell you, for me, as, as your pastor, when you get past all of the rhetoric and defensiveness and name-calling, we find that many Bible scholars have pointed to Genesis chapter 2 and points out that human life did come out of the material world so that we should be able to see that. And, and many scientists have agreed with uh, Richard Owen that even though we, we can't deny that there is a material link between human bodies, human life, and, and the rest of the material world, that doesn't rule out that God may have made us in some ways unique from the rest of creation. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, a verse I want you to see, you can see these two things. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. Do you see that? The material side. And then the Lord God breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The spiritual side. The, these two sides of us. The material and the spiritual. And so my basic underlying viewpoint is this. That God's Word teaches both that you and I as human beings come out of the material world, but also that we are specially created by God. In fact, I don't, uh, we didn't read the entirety. Just a moment. <clears throat> Hope that doesn't make it on the tape. We didn't read the entirety of Genesis chapter 1 today, but if you did, 
and I'll encourage you to do it and to read it out loud. What you will find is the way that it is written has this cadence that keeps going. Day by day by day. And God said, let there be. And it was. And God said, let there be. And it was. It changes just a little bit when you get to the fifth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. And at the beginning of day six, like it, let the land produce living creatures. But I'll tell you, when you get to the middle of day six, the cadence changes. You know what I think of when I read it, when I read it out loud? It feels like a wedding. It feels like a wedding. You know, you have the music that's going processional is happening people are walking down the aisle you get all the bridesmaids coming you get the the flower girl coming the ring bearer coming the uh, the uh, maid of honor comes but then what happens the music changes everyone stops for a moment and then everyone stands up and the bride comes into the room that's what happens here This cadence is going, beautiful things are happening, they're all good, they're all good, they're all good, and then it all stops. And God says, and the way it puts it, you can just see the very difference, verse 26, let us make the man in our own image, in our likeness, male and female. And it was so. What we see in that then, is the uniqueness of a human being being made in the image of God in the Bible's very opening statement about us. Now, we're not God. We're not eternal as God is. We were made out of the dust. And because we were made out of the material world, our origins can be investigated in this world. And, and because we are physical bodies, our bodies can be investigated in a laboratory, just like the rest of life. But the Bible is saying there is still something absolutely different about us. And it says that there is something sacred about every human life. And the phrase that is used in verse 26 is, We were made, you were made, in the image of God. Imago Dei. We reflect something of God himself. What on earth is that about? Well, people have wrestled with this and had much more time than I have today. But I think simply from the context of Genesis 1 and 2, we can see that if we boil this down, the image of God in us talks about your and my unique ability to engage in relationships. In relationships. What kind of relationships? Well, let me show you. First, being made in the image of God, you and I have the ability to engage in a right relationship with our world with everything else that is created. And I'll, I'll put it this way. It is, we have the ability to, investigate, to, to be involved in a relationship of ruling over and caring for the world so that our decisions can further goodness in the rest of creation. Does that make sense to you? Well, let me show it to you. Chapter 1, verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And the very next phrase... Let them rule. And the same thing happens. Verse 27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created man. And I mean male and female. He created them. And so God did it and told us to be fruitful and to increase in number, fill the earth, and then rule over the rest of creation. Now, if you look around you, you'll see that human beings have always had this remarkable ability to adapt the world around us 
to meet our needs. Uh, the rest of creation, if, if the world around changes, it has to adapt somehow and often becomes extinct because it cannot. But human beings, it's pretty amazing. Uh, we're not the strongest of the living creatures. Well, we don't have these ferocious teeth like some, some creatures, and yet we're able to subdue the rest of living creation. Uh, we, we don't have the most body hair, especially me, of, the, of all of creation. And yet, amazingly, we're able to shape the world around us so that you and I have found ways to live in the worst kind of arctic cold like I did for so many years in Chicago <laughs> and to survive in the hottest of places like the, uh, like the equator. We have even been able to find ways to survive in places that the rest of life in our world couldn't survive for a moment. Places like the face of the moon. Now, I've tried to formulate it and put it together because of time constraints, but here's the way I'd state it. The book of Genesis indicates that human beings have been created with an ability to adapt the world to meet our needs. And we're able to do so because we have been made with a measure of the wisdom and creative genius of God himself. God put us on the earth to rule over it and care for it just as God rules over and cares for the rest of creation. Now keep that up for a moment because that last phrase I put up there intentionally. Rule and care just as God rules and cares. And I put it there because, and I think you know why, because many people have looked at this and said that gives them license to do whatever they want with creation, even to do things that harm and destroy the rest of creation. And that is not what the Bible is saying. How did God use his ability to rule over this world? Well, read through Genesis 1 and you see it. Every time he was finished, it was good. It was good. It was good. And when we reflect the image of God, we make decisions that affect our world for, for the good, which is a beautiful part of us. It means that our lives can make a difference in this world. Do you see that? But it also is a dangerous part of us. We can make decisions that harm this world. See, it, 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 it's that ability that you and I have being made in God's image to look and see the potential impact of a decision that we make. We, we can look at the past, we can look at the present, and, and we know that if we do this, this probably will happen. And being made in the image of God and being given the responsibility to love and to care for the world that He has put us in means that we should use that ability for goodness and not for harm. It has so many implications. And I'll just give you a few. It's our basis for the ability to engage in scientific endeavor and historic discovery. Well, we have historians here. We have scientists here. And this is the basis for us loving to do this kind of work. Historians, we can look back into the past and see that when people did this in the past, this is what happened. With this notion, if we do this again, this might happen. If it's for harm, we can warn. If it is for good, we can encourage. Scientists, we're able to look at this world and look at these notions of cause and effect, that if I do this, this will be the effect, likely. So that if I uh, uh, do something that potentially will lead to a destruction of the beauty of this world, we can give a warning. And if it leads toward goodness, we can give encouragement. It makes it so that we can enjoy investigating and discovering the world and then make wise judgments for the good rather than for harm. It's one of the implications of being made in God's image. 
Uh, A second is this. This gives us the ability to really engage in this God-given, biblically directed calling to be caretakers of this world, uh, including the relationships that we have. Now, this is the place where I said I I couldn't believe. Every phrase that I say seems to get me into a political debate. Uh, It's hard for me to imagine, but for me as your pastor to stand up here and to say, listen, the decision that you and I make will affect the environment around us, and we have a God-given responsibility to make our decisions in a way that will lead to the beauty and the order that God put into this world. That's, that's a part of the image of God in us. And the moment I say this, people feel like, oh, what, is this, what, what kind of political activist is this pastor of ours? I want you to know that this biblical admonition long predates any of our current debates politically. And it really is a part of the beauty of what God has given us as human beings that we should be the ultimate people caring for the environment because we look at everything and know that our Father made it. We sing the song that we sang last week, this is our Father's world. And God has given us this beautiful stewardship to be able to make decisions that that lead to the order and beauty and design that we see that God had. And I think we need to take that seriously and engage in it responsibly. And I know that it is tough sometimes because commerce often seems to be in conflict with environmental concerns. And yet a part of the image of God in us is that we can look at those things and we can weigh those things and we can make wise decisions. It's a part of the beauty of being human. I guess also another implication of this is uh, that we're able to enjoy the world God has put us in. It gives me the basis for why I take vacations why I love the ocean, why I like to walk in the mountains, because God has given it to us. And he says, enjoy it. I'll give you food, so create some good-tasting food. Um, I'll give you this world that you can look at. God created the world. You can almost picture him stepping back, and he says, look at that. That's good. (laughs) And And we have that ability to do so as well and should take time for that. It, It also gives us the basis of why we have so much satisfaction when we do something and we accomplish something and complete it. It's the basis of satisfaction in our work, being going, going into the workplace and knowing that my action can bring goodness to the culture of this place. I can contribute to what is being done in this place because we are made in the image of God, which means we have this ability to engage in right relationship for goodness with the rest of creation. Is that clear? It's a beautiful thing. Second, we also have this ability to engage in a right relationship with God himself. Uh, It's a relationship. Now, some chafe at this, so you're with me here, aren't you? This right relationship with God that is supposed to be a beautiful thing, a lot of people don't like, but I'll tell you what it is. It is a relationship of moral accountability in which we live well when we allow God to rule over and care for our lives. Now, I'll tell you, this is a very kind of academic way of saying this means you've got to live God's way rather than your own if you're going to live well. (laughs) Because in Genesis chapter 2, what we find is God walking and talking with human beings, don't we? And that's what we're made for. You and I are made to know God. There's something empty inside of us when God is not in his rightful place in our lives. But the thing you need to see is, even though there was a relationship between Adam and God, it wasn't a relationship of equals. Only one of them was God. 
The other was made in the image of God. And in this, God gave so much freedom and liberty to human beings to enjoy the world that he put us in. Go out and discover it, he says. Enjoy what is there. But, when you get to verse 16, there is one but. But you must not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And people have debated about why that command is there. I have no idea why he picked that one. But I do know this. It is here because God wanted people to know that even though we have much liberty being made in his image, that liberty is a liberty that only brings us real joy and engages in us being fully human when we surrender our wills to God. We are made to be responsible to God and to live the way he has created us to live. So I frame the principle this way. God intended human freedom to be a freedom, but with moral accountability to him. Though we're made in God's image, you and I are still creatures. We are made to have great liberty, but it's always under the rule of one who is greater than we are. Namely, God himself. And then this last phrase. See see if you agree with this. You and I are fully human, as God teaches it. We're fully human when we do as God made us to do, not when we do just whatever we want. Those of you who were here last week, do you remember my way Brightian contention in which I am contending, contending that we don't want to be commanded even by God? We don't want to be evaluated even by God. And what God is saying is, listen, I have made you different from the rest of creation. And that's why we can hear a a moral rule and decide, am I going to obey God or not? We don't just live by instinct as the rest of creation does. We are able to make choices to open up this word of our Father and hear Him say, this is the way I made you to live. You'll live well if you do that. And we have a choice. Will we live His way or our own? And I think the history of our world that shows the messes that we've made of our environment or of our economies and of our politics and of our own lives, if we've messed up our own lives, is that we've ignored this part of the image of God in us. That you and I have been made to live well and to enjoy the world God has put us in. But we only live well when we live in moral accountability to God himself. The ability to live that way is a part of the image of God in us. It sets us apart from the rest of creation. And it is beautiful. And those of us who have gone God's way rather than our own have experienced the joy that comes from that. I guess the principle would be this. Obey God and experience paradise. But go your own way and walk out of paradise. Genesis 2 and 3. The image of God in us. Third, and time goes by too quickly for me. It also means the ability you and I have to have a right relationship with one another. And by that I mean a committed and growing relationship. Human beings, we can have relationships that demonstrate the very unity and love of God himself. Uh, Other creations can engage in relationship, but not this kind of relationship. Verse 18, you can see, read the story. You probably know it. God went around and examined everything in creation. It was all good, very good. And finally he saw one thing that was not good. He looked at this one man, Adam, and he saw it's not good for the man to be alone. Now, why not? I think we've experienced that. To me, the most difficult human emotion is loneliness. 
in those years that I was a university president and traveling 155 days a year, what I hated was having meals alone. I mean, meals are meant to be had with fellowship. The movies and theaters to be experienced with somebody to talk about. You know what I'm saying, don't you? We were made to live in relationship. Why? Because God has always lived in relationship. It takes us back to this very unusual phrase in some people's minds in chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us. God using the plural for himself. Well, I'll tell you, scholars have debated about that. Uh, some have, have wanted to say, oh, this is just some sort of plural Maya status. You know, in some ancient cultures, a king wanted to be called by the plural so that he would be thought to be more than he is. But that whole notion, this predates that, and it's not the same form. I don't think it really works. Others are now saying this. Oh, it's only because the Genesis account was stealing from other creation myths. And the other ones, of course, had many gods. And so when they took it over, um, they just forgot to take out the plural part. And so that's how it made it in here mistakenly. I'm telling you, if you know the care with which these Jewish scriptures were put together and passed on to us, you know that that is not possible. I think the only way to understand this is that this is a foreshadowing of what the New Testament will make clearer. That the God we believe in is one God. But God has always existed in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Early Christians saw this. St. Augustine thought about it. He said, God has made himself known as love. The essence of our God is love. So he loves you. But he pointed out that love to have substance must exist in a relationship. Love without an object to love will have nothing substantial about it. And that's why God has eternally existed in a relationship of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why when God looked at Adam, he said it's not good for Adam to be alone. Why? Because Adam was made in the image of God. And those made in the image of God don't enjoy life when we live it alone. And so the ability to engage in a committed relationship with another person uh, to reconcile differences, to find ways for that relationship to grow and to last. That beautiful part of our existence is a part of the image of God in us. And if you look at verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2, you'll see God picks out one particular relationship that reflects the image of God. It's not the only one, but it is one that does. And he picks out the, the relationship of marriage. The relationship in which, as he had said, let us make man, and by man I mean male and female. And a relationship in which a male and a female come together and are able to become one flesh and engage in God's command to multiply and fill the earth. That God says, look at that. It's that kind of relationship that reflects my diversity with unity to this world. And so in thinking about that, I've written a principle, and I want you to look at it, and then I want to clarify one or two things. Marriage, then. The relationship in which a male and a female, you see it's stated chapter 1, it goes in chapter 2, and it's reiterated in uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which male and female enter into a lasting covenant with one another, become one flesh with one another, and can participate in this endeavor to fill the earth is a visible reflection of the unity with diversity that we see in our Creator God. 
Now, let me say a few things. Those who are single, this does not mean that you do not engage in the image of God. Any human relationship where we make a commitment to a person, we work through that relationship and find that that relationship is lasting and growing as a reflection of the image of God. We can do that because we're made in his image. Uh, One of my closest relationships, you've met him. He plays the piano sometimes when he comes. Jamie Rankin has been this long, long long-term friendship. The ability to work through the things that make for a lasting relationship is a part of the image of God in us. Married couples who are here. Uh, if you are unable to have children, that does not mean that you do not reflect the image of God. Your ability to enter into that relationship with one another and even work through some of the challenges of times like these in that relationship is a very reflection of the image of God. So this is simply one of the most beautiful ways to show it. And God is saying, this is what I mean. And with that in mind, and with all the political issues, like I said, everything I've said this morning seems to touch upon some controversial issue. And yet I'll just say this. I know that the definitions and laws of the governments in our world will not always perfectly reflect the definitions and laws that we find in the Bible. I know that. But the reason why I still stand for and uphold marriage as it's described in the Bible is that I deeply believe that any society that will still celebrate and protect this relationship that in some unique way shows uh, the image of God in human beings, that society will be a better society. And that's why I, as your pastor at least, will continue to stand for that relationship being identified and celebrated in our world. Even while I continue to talk about the fact that we can engage in the exercise of the image of God in relationships in so, so many ways. Why? Because every human being, each one of us, look at us, and all of us, have been made in the image of God. Something sacred about a human life. And of course, that's why when we find people suffering in Haiti, God's people who look there, we look there and we say those are valuable people. Whatever has happened in their past, whatever bad political decisions they have made, these are people for whom Christ died and people whom God loves and we should reach out and try to show the same love of God to them because they are made in the image of God. This is what has shaped my whole ministry. You know that I say, talk these messages about God's unexpected family. What makes it possible for people who are so different from one another? in external appearance, in educational background, in socioeconomics, to come and I say, we can be brothers and sisters. It's not that you ignore the differences. In fact, we celebrate those differences. God made them. I mean, isn't it good that the whole creation doesn't all look alike? So we're able to come together, but we know that there are things that transcend those external things. What kinds of things? The fact that every person has something sacred or valuable about them that is worthy of respect, and the fact that it's so true that Christ gave his life so that whosoever will can be forgiven of sins and come into the family of God. So much, and Albert's going to be coming in just a moment, so much so that when Jesus would say, I'll tell you what, at the last day I'm I'm going to bless you if you cared for the least of them. And then we ask, who are the least of these? And he lets us know that's a human construct. The least of these are the least of these in the eyes of the world, but not in the eyes of God. 
Because Jesus will say, if you reach out to them, you have really reached out to me. For my image is in them. And our ability to transcend all those little differences that divide people and engage in a committed, lasting, and loving relationship with people is a part of the image of God in us. Albert, I would love to have you come now and just help us to see how this might apply to us when this particular special weekend, the ability to have right relationships with the world, with God, and with one another. Albert, may God bless you as you bring that. In Luke chapter 20, they try to catch Jesus up on his words. They send in these spies to to try to catch Jesus and to find a reason to bring an accusation against him. They come and they say, um, uh, 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 Jesus, why, sh- sh- should we give taxes? Sh- should we pay taxes? Jesus, the way he does, he says, pull, pull, pull out your money. He, they pull out a coin and he says, tell me the, here it is, image that's on the coin. Tell me the inscription that's on the coin. It says, Caesar. He says, well, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And then he goes on and in the same breath he says, but give to God what belongs to God. He, he, he pulls them right back to this passage where we're in, in Genesis and reminds them that, yeah, 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 the coin has Caesar's image, but you, my friend, you bear God's image. So now you give back to God what belongs to God. You bring your life and you give your life back to God. This isn't our life, it's God's life. And so he says, give back to God what you owe to God. I wish she would have called me first. I wish she would have called me first. I had a friend who came in town and she was there visiting and uh, uh, she was there for uh, an extended period of time and she called me and I went to visit and all throughout her time and her stay there she was sick, sick all week, all week and Monday, Tuesday and around Wednesday or Thursday she finally came clean and she said, Albert, I haven't been feeling well because I've come here to my aunt's house to stay for a few weeks because I'm recovering uh, from an abortion. I wish she would have called me first. I would, have, I would have told her. I would have said, I would have said you, you are made in the image of God. You belong to God. And my dear sister, that decision, that choice that you made, it doesn't belong to you. You don't have the power or the authority to make those kinds of decisions. That choice belongs to God. You, 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 you're way out of your league. You're not qualified to make these kind of choices. I, I, I know you have uh, the, the legal right and you didn't break any laws, but I'm telling you that you were created by someone greater than you and we're held accountable to that great uh, authority, to that great creator. So we don't operate under our own authority. We don't make decisions on our own, but we give those decisions back to God. I wish I wish she would have called me first because I would have told her that the creator, he created you in his image and he loves you so much he he values you so much and he values your unborn child so much that he'll 
He wouldn't let you live in isolation. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't let you live and, 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 and be consumed with the, with, with the realities of, of this tragedy. He, he will come alongside that you have a God that will show up in the midst of your tragedy. You have a God that will show up in the midst of your hard times. You have a God that will never leave you nor forsake you. So I don't care how hard the decision, how difficult the choice, you have a God that loves you enough to never, ever let you go. He loves you. I wish you would have called me first. I would have said, I would have said you, don't have to, you don't have to make this decision in isolation. Let me take you to a place called the Living Well. The Living Well where they have these amazing people that will come and sit around you and help give you godly counsel and let you see that there are other options and there's another way to live. You don't have to live in the chaos of this decision. There's some people that can help you think wisely and think godly about the decision that you make. I wish she would have called me. I would have said, don't worry about your reality. Where you are going to stay and if you're going to make it? There are great people. There's a place called Elizabeth House. They, they take in women that are pregnant, that are carrying children and they, 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 they give them a home and they provide support and love and spiritual formation. They'll come alongside. You won't have to live by yourself. There'll be a community that'll come around you. I wish she would have called me first. I would have told her that, that there's a place when, when, when you get that little one and he's running around. There, there's a place I would have introduced her to Nancy Styles, who runs our teen mops program where there's a group of young ladies that have chosen to keep their children in learning how to be the best moms they could be and they're sitting in rooms and they're learning how to schedule play dates and picking up recipes and how to, how to organize the house and supporting moms because all moms should be supported and connected. I wish she would have called me first. I wish that I now could call her. She, um, she called me several weeks later. And, and she calls, and I can hear the tears. I can hear the crying in her voice. And she says, Albert, my mom told me to call someone that I trust and someone that I can talk to. So I called you. Um, Albert, um, I was pregnant with twins. Uh, and when I had the procedure, uh, I, after the procedure, I still had a, a living child within me that I didn't know about. And, and I've come home now, and I've been sick, and I've gone back to the doctor. Now my parents know. Everybody knows. And, and I don't know if this child that I have now is going to make it. And Albert, I, I just don't know where to turn. And this was y'all some 17 years ago. So I, I prayed with her, and I gave her some words of encouragement. But I was way out of my league. But I wish... I wish I could talk to her now because I don't know if you know what it's like to talk to a woman that's ever had an abortion and the, 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 the guilt and the shame and the regret. Every time you feel the child in your stomach, you think about the child that you could have had. I don't know if you know what it's like to, to console a woman who's mourning the loss of a child, especially that they lost at their own hand. I wish I could get her on the phone now because if I could get her on the phone today, y'all, I would tell her, I would remind her, I would say, please know that the renewing grace of God is greater than your failure. Please, please know that the renewing grace of God is greater than any mistake, greater than any accident, greater than your guilt, greater than your shame, greater than your embarrassment. The grace of God is greater than your failure. 
I, I, I would tell her, don't, don't, don't you dare allow yourself to be forced into isolation, into secrecy, into guilt, into shame. Don't you allow yourself to come into a church and keep your head bowed down because nobody knows what I've done. And if they knew what I've done, then they'd never embrace me. They'd never love me. Well, let me tell you, God knows what you've done. He knows who you are, and He still loves you. He still embraces you, and He has a plan for your life. Friends, I hope, I hope I got some failures that came to church this morning. I hope I have some people that messed up big time that showed up to church this morning because I came to encourage you. I can't get her on the phone, but I got you for another hour. Uh, hallelujah. I can't get her on the phone, but, but I want to I tell you God's grace is better and is greater than your failures. I'm telling you, you feel like you're held captive, held captive by guilt, held captive by your history, held captive by your secrets, held captive by the guilt and the shame of your past. But I'm telling you, I had a friend tell me the other day, Jesus Christ, he'll send those twins to come see you. Uh, twins? What twins? You know those twins, grace and mercy. Those twins will show up in your life, grace and mercy, and they'll console you and bring you the healing that you so desperately need. And that God so desperately desires for you. Any failures today? Any, anybody you may say, I, I, I can see you kind of sitting up in your chair, oh, but I'm not a failure. Do you know any? And have you extended them the grace? Because friends, not only is it God's image, not only do we belong to God, but the grace belongs to God as well. Ah, yes, the grace is not ours to withhold or to deny or to qualify. Who's worthy of grace today? Who's worthy of my forgiveness? Who, who deserves to be given a second chance? We don't have that authority. Those decisions belong to God. The grace is not ours to withhold. The grace is ours to extend. Who in your life do you need to extend grace to? Friends, be very careful because in our society we qualify people who's worthy, who's in the in and who's on the out, who has and who hasn't, the, the haves and the have-nots. We qualify people who's worthy of my company, who's worthy of relationship and fellowship with me, who's worthy to be forgiven, who's worthy to be given a second. we we got to be careful because you know they had those kinds of people in Jesus' day. A quick look at Matthew 25. It's very interesting. Sometimes I think we read past it too quickly, but Jesus literally says on that great day, the God of all glory will pull us all together and he'd separate the goat from the sheep and he'll ask a qualifying question. He'll, 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 he'll deal and he'll, he'll pull the sheep and we'll say, well, how did they get over there? Well, these are the ones that when I was naked, they gave me clothes. When I was hungry, they fed me. When I was... When I was thirsty, they gave me water. When I was in prison, they came to visit me. When I was a stranger, they took me in. You can hear them saying, Jesus, when? When were you hungry? When were you naked? When were you a prisoner? When did we have to take you in? He says, when you've done it to the least of these. How have you done the least of these? How have you done the least of these? I'll close with this. Martin Luther King, Jr., one of his final sermons, uh, as a matter of fact, they played this sermon at his, at his funeral. He, he says, he starts talking and he says, when, when I die, I, I don't want a long funeral. 
He says, if you find someone to give my eulogy, tell them, tell them not to talk too long. Uh, they obviously wouldn't have got me or Dr. Waybright to do the eulogy. We wouldn't have made it. But he, he says, tell them not to talk too long and, and then tell them not to mention that I won a Nobel Peace Prize because that's not important. Not, tell them not to mention that I won some 300, 400 other awards. That's not important. Not to mention what school I went to. That's not important. He said, but tell them that Martin Luther King Jr. gave his life to try to help somebody. Tell them that I tried to love everybody. I, I, I tried to, to feed the hungry. I tried to clothe the naked. I tried to visit those in prison. As a matter of fact, if they want to talk about me being a leader, if they want to talk about me being a drum major, tell them I was a drum major for peace, a drum major for justice, a drum major for righteousness. He said, when I think about it, if I could help somebody as I pass along, if I could cheer someone with a word or song, if I can show someone who's traveling wrong, then my living shall not be in vain. If I, could, if I can love everybody like a good Christian ought, if I could bring salvation and beauty to a world that's uproar, if I could share the message that the Master taught, then my living shall not be in vain. Friends, are you living in vain this morning? Are you in good relationship with God and His creation? Because when we enter in a great relationship with God and His creation, then our life points to His glory. When we enter into right relationship with, with God and when we are obedient and we will submit to who He is and His rule and His care for our life, then we point to God's glory. When we enter in right relationship with one another and we see people not by the color of their skin, but by the character of their content, then we can embrace not only the dream that Martin Luther King had, but the promise that was deep-rooted in the scriptures that said, when we all come together and see one another as the image of God, then we can celebrate way more than just free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last, but free at last, thank God Almighty that we're whole, we're complete, because I'm only complete when you're complete. When I see God in you and you see God in me, there's a wholeness and there's a freedom that comes there. When I can see you struggling, when, when, when God's children weep, we weep. I don't know about you, but looking at CNN, when I watch Haiti, I weep. Because my brothers and sisters weep. And I see the image of God. And that, my friends, is true godly freedom. God is calling us to that freedom today. That every person we see, we see the God in them. And I pray that you can see the God in me to his glory. Amen.